the talk is about the quest according to the Buddha. I suppose the best thing is is to relate to you the story of the Buddha himself. I'm sure you know the, the bare bones of it, but <clears throat> in a sense, his story is the uh, it's the archetype really of of anybody who's on the spiritual path. So. Um, There, there are lots of legends around, you know, what happened to him before, you know, the way he lived and whatnot. But basically, he was the son of a, a local lord, a local chieftain. Yeah, that's best, a chieftain. And um, a kshatriya. So he would have been brought up in, in the art of war and government. And that was the duty of his caste. Yeah. And... Uh, it was a time of great change, moving from pastoral society to um, the first uh, monarchical systems. So already the Sakyas were subject to the king of Kosala. So they weren't, they weren't as they were, say, a bit before the Buddha's time, uh, tribes who had their own um, democratic way of governing themselves. Democratic in the sense that the, the Greeks thought of democracy, you know, just the ruling caste uh, sharing the power <laughs> so uh, within that uh, change there was um, uh, not only the growth of uh, kingship and local power, three or four kings around the Buddha uh, but the cities grew and trade grew and a new caste you might say arose within an already existing caste, the merchants became very rich uh, so that sort of shifted the balance of power a bit. And uh, at the time of the Buddha, the castes weren't so solid as they became. So the idea that the Brahmins were the, the, the head of society had not yet been fully established. It seems as though it had been established in, ben- in towards what we call Bengal, Calcutta way. But where he was in the middle, it was still fairly fluid. <clears throat> so when you read the scriptures, it's always the Buddha telling them what a real Brahmin is. <laughs> and suggesting that they weren't as great as they thought. So, uh, the f- you know, it's round about the age of 29, that's what, what is said, that he left the home life. And uh, I'm sure you all experienced in your mid-twenties uh, a growing realisation that, uh, you know, nobody under 25 is that? No. Uh, <laughs> that uh, youth had actually, or was coming rather rapidly to an end. And that one had better get serious about life. And it's normally a time you might, uh, if you're really forward-looking, take out a pension, uh, start to <laughs> take your work seriously, and, and even start a relationship with true intent. So it's a shift within our consciousness around about the age of, mid, you know, the mid-twenties. And for some, it's an early existential crisis, you know. And uh, I suppose you could reduce uh, the spiritual path to maybe three questions the first one being something like who am I or what am I Uh, the second one being you know how do I relate how do I fit in and the third one being you know what do I do and those are your three paths the path of understanding or insight the path of love and the path of action so at that time because of the disturbance in society uh, there was a growing, what uh, something like the hippie movement, 
everybody, uh, lots of uh, people, men, uh, uh, leaving the home life to live as ascetics, wanderers. And uh, they were well accepted by society. They were considered to be worthy of support. And what they were trying to do was to find the end of rebirth. The, uh, the thing that obsessed the mind at that time was this idea of constantly being reborn, you know, having to come back. And it's okay if times are good, but because those times weren't so good and there was a lot of anxiety in the air, the question of how do you bring that whole process, the samsara, the onward going process to an end? So various teachers at the Buddha's time had various answers. Some were what we would call materialists. You just, uh, you live this life and you died and that was it. Some thought that the passage of karmic lives was co completely set. It was, it was um, fate. So they didn't mind whether you went down one side of the Ganges, pillaging and murdering and all that, and come up the other side with great acts of compassion. It made no difference at all. Whatever you were supposed to be born in the next life, that was going to happen. And there were others. Uh, the, 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 uh, the Jain leader, of course, was uh, an elder contemporary of the Buddha. And um, he had, uh, they had the idea, which I think was also within the Brahminical system, that there, were, there was stuff sort of clinging onto the soul, the jiva. Uh, and it was done by action, but it was like stuff clinging. And the way to bring it to an end was to really stop, just stop, stop creating karma. So you know the Jains are very... Uh, wary of stepping on creatures and stuff like that because even if you don't mean it it's bad news you know. and the uh, the Jane saint basically uh, starves themselves to death I mean that's you bring your karma to an end by just ending your life so when the Buddha uh, left the home life he left not only because of perhaps joining the obsession of the age, of trying to work out, you know, was there an end to this rebirth thing? It was also because he'd, he'd sort of be, become disenchanted with what society had to offer. Um, and one image that comes through the scriptures is at a party. And at the end of the party, all he sees is disheveled bodies and people being drunk and whatnot. And uh, it's like, well, what's all this about? Uh, sort of an emptiness of uh, of uh, of the sensual life, really, you know. And that was part of his disillusionment. And all he could see ahead of him was uh, the ordinary, this ordinary type of living. He just trying to be happy all the time, you know, with sensual pleasure. And the other part was a more existential uh, insight, which is put in the myth that he was out uh, out riding in his chariot or whatever. And he came across a sick person, a very old person, and a corpse, and an ascetic sitting under a tree. And uh, this just awoke in him the fact that, you know, this is the facts of life. This is, you know, you, you get sick, you grow old, and then you die. You know? The old comedian said, life's hard, and then you die. <laughs> so, but this, this idea of an ascetic under a tree awoke in him some sort of hope, some sort of um, idea that maybe there was an end to this process. And uh, so he goes off, leaving the ordinary household life, leaving really sensual pleasure. I and mean, that's what he's left. He doesn't see any, 
any future in sensual pleasure. Right? And it's, it's very sort of uh, dramatic. He, he leaves um, his newly born child and he peeks through the curtain of the door and he doesn't look because it would draw him back into the holy life, uh, the, sort of the household life, and, and he leaves. So these days, of course, that sounds like abandonment. <laughs> Which it was. But, but a man's got to do what a man... Remember in those days, uh, there would have been the extended family, it's not as though she was destitute. And um, also, he talks about his mother and father with, were crying and with tearful eyes, saying goodbye to him. So it was all set up, and he probably did what I did to my mother and said, well, I'm only going for three years. Because <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to become a monk for three years. I had never heard anybody cry like that before in my life. And I put my arm and I said, come on, Mum. I said, it's only for three years. And she stopped. <laughs> so, so I presume it was that sort of uh, goodbye, that there was a presumption that he'd ever go and then he'd come back. So the first uh, thing he does is he goes off and uh, he hears about these two very good teachers who both say they've achieved nirvana, they've achieved the end of suffering. And uh, what they teach him became part of his system of teaching. We call it the jhanas or the absorption states. And the way that you attain these is through uh, mantra practice, through watching the breath. Uh, Slowly but surely you build up a, a beautiful state within yourself and this state becomes quite calm, it can become ecstatic, and you lose contact with the physical world, you lose contact with the body, and in a, it's like a, a little bubble inside you that, that you can, can live in. And depending on the strength of your concentration and practice, you can stay there for quite some time. Uh, one of them taught him uh, to go to a certain stage, and the next one taught him to go one stage higher. And both of them, especially the second one, uh, saw him as an equal, and both of them invited him to be a teacher, a co-teacher. But uh, his response was that he, there was something wrong. He hadn't actually completed, he hadn't actually answered his question, because when you came out of these states, he was still the same old depressed Siddhartha. You know? So <coughs> he, he left that, and he thought, well, the thing to try now is, is the other way, which was self-mortification. And that's where the Jain leader... Uh, we think had an effect on his practice. So this idea of desire is rooted uh, in the uh, Brahminical tradition that the problem is desire. Even Socrates was aware of that. And um, one understanding was that it was the body that was at fault. It was the body that gave us hunger and lust uh, and avarice and all that. It was rooted in the body. So if you left, if you left society and really starved the body, really stopped feeding into it, then um, that would bring you to the end of karma, that, you know, that sort of idea. Um, I'm sure you've all done a 10-day fast. Yeah? No? Okay. Well, <laughs> well, if you have, you'll know that the first three days are horrible while the, the body releases toxins. But then after that, uh, you feel very light, very wonderful. You don't want to eat at all. Of course, you're dying, but that's irrelevant. It's, it's a very happy, you know, calm state of mind. So it does have that sort of an effect. And, and he goes through this business of um, eating so little that he says he could hold his spine through his stomach and stuff like that. And uh, what he found was it was just painful. So, 
and that didn't seem to get him anywhere either. Self-mortification was just painful and unprofitable. Ignobly, actually, he says. So um, he left that, and this, and he by that time he had five companions. And um, as the as the myth goes, or, you know, little story that surrounds it, he's uh, he's standing, he's, he's left them, and he's gone onto a roadside, and uh, a woman Sujata comes along with a, a bit of rice pudding. So you all know the salvific effect of rice pudding, yeah. So he, the man off, this woman offers it, and it, it sort of revives him, you know. And uh, for some reason, and maybe because it was rice pudding, you know, um, he remembers this uh, moment in childhood, and this is a sort of key moment in his life. He's watching his father doing a ploughing ceremony, and um, there's something about that watching which is different from these meditations that he's been doing with these people. So the meditation he's been doing with these two teachers had been about creating a state of mind. Like we do when, for instance, we're a bit bored and we turn the TV on. So as soon as you turn the TV on, you, you get a different state of mind. So, and, and they'd been unsatisfactory. But there's something about this uh, watching of his father which uh, awoke in him um, you know, the possibility. Now, this was something different. And what it was, was that he was still very concentrated. He recognised that the state he was in as a child had, had that same uh, level of concentration that he got through these meditative uh, exercises. But he was watching. But he was uh, beginning to understand what his father was doing. So something else had come into the equation, which was then what he called his the wisdom factor, the panya, this intuitive intelligence. So if, you're, if your intent is just to make yourself happy, I mean, there's, there's no problem in investigating anything. If it makes you happy, that's fine. <coughs> Why worry? But if something doesn't make you happy, if something goes wrong, like with your washing machine or something, then you want to know. You know there's, like a, like, there's that wanting to know. So although he had this wanting to know, he wanted to know whether there was an end to suffering, there was still... The, the, the exercise he'd been given were just creating beautiful states of mind, which also came to an end. Uh, why it didn't occur to him then to uh, investigate those was probably because the people he was surrounded with were telling him, well, no, this is it, there is no more. There was no, there was no um, uh, inkling as to how to move further with that sort of system. And, uh, you know, the self-mortification, I mean, that, just, that was just painful. So this memory then, he decided to, to uh, continue his practice. And he found a nice place near Uruvela, which is now Bodhgaya. And a nice bit of, um, I think you call it tusa grass, so he could sit comfortably, you see. So he always start comfortable. And he sat there, and uh, he made this determination that now he couldn't see any other possibility. He said, now I'm going to sit here. Either I'm going to crack this problem, or I'm going to die. So it was a very firm determination. Uh, luckily, the bluff wasn't called because he did actually make, <laughs> make insight. Now, the insights were three. He had three insights which, are, um, which gave him an understanding and also liberated him. The, uh, because of his, of his very good concentration, he was able to direct his attention to past lives. And uh, 
if you want to do it, there's, I, I can get, I'll, I'll tell you where you can get the technique. <laughs> you have to have very strong concentration. And as he went through his past lives, what he saw was that in passing from one life to the next, it depended upon the moral quality of the life before, on, it, on the ethical value of the life before. Now, uh, this was not the way the Brahmins thought at the time. Karma, for the Brahmins, was to do the ritual properly. So remember, uh, the, the, the early polytheistic societies, um, they uh, personalised forces in nature, so, you, you know, the sun god, things like that. And the first sacrifices were there to propitiate these gods to get what you wanted. It was an asking, you see. Later on, um, it became more that if you did the ritual perfectly right, the God had to answer. So your karma was getting the ritual perfectly right. It had nothing to do with ethics. So the entrance of ethics into the Indian system was, uh, according to the books I've read, was peculiar to the Buddha. It came later on, of course, in, in Hinduism. So he saw that this was true of his own life, that depending on his moral actions, good or bad, in the past life, in past life, he would be reborn according to that. So it was a, it become a personal truth for him. Uh, because of his um, ability to uh, see things, he was able also to see people, uh, beings, passing from one realm to the other according to the same law. So what had been a personal law then became a cosmic law for him. That according to your ethical actions, you'll reap the results. Uh, uh, good or bad, yeah? And the third thing, so these two were just deep insights into the way things were, but they didn't liberate him. The liberation, the liberation came with the collapse of ignorance and the, and the, um, the answer to the question uh, of who am I? Who am I? <clears throat> and that... Uh, and that uh, led to, to this, uh, what people find a very confusing sort of doctrine of anatta, not self. Uh, the first thing is, it's not a philosophical statement, it's not a metaphysical statement, it's a, a technique to investigate ourselves. So when we're sitting or anywhere, every time you experience something and you recognise there's a split between that which is experiencing and the experience, there's a, a split in your, in your consciousness, then every time that happens, whatever you're experiencing can't be you, can't be, there's a, there's a break. See? And this goes back and back, it goes back from the body in its sensations, it goes, you step back from the heart with its emotions, and you step back from the mind with its thoughts. And the final one is this feeling of, of presence, the feeling of being, uh, that, that we might have in, in uh, occasionally, a sort of self-awareness. So even that, you see, if you're aware of a self, you can't be that either, can you? That's also an object. See? So this movement backwards off what you're actually experiencing is the process of liberation. Mm? So the, uh, sort of the basic um, existential delusion lies within that uh, who am I? So, <clears throat> as a child, I don't think we made any distinction between me and my body. Yeah? Later on, we can begin to uh, use a certain language, like, I am feeling unwell, where 
you think your your illness, uh, but you know I have a headache. So we already have a sort of a dualistic uh, relationship to what we experience, and that process of identity and possession is at the core of all our suffering. And the reason is that once you have identified with something, I am, <clears throat> I am this, I am that, uh, what is your search? Your search is for happiness. Okay? So you've got to search it within what you think you are. So if you think you're a human being, you've got to make it right here and now. If you think, you're, if you think it's a, to do with pleasure, then you've got to manipulate the world to make sure it's giving you as much pleasure as you can, because only then do you feel happy. Hmm? If you think it's relationship, then you're constantly dependent upon somebody else for your personal happiness. Okay? You, form a, you form an attachment, yeah? and at worst an identity, with what you're experiencing. And it's only when you, when you begin to realize that there's an aftermath to these experiences that you begin to have the same inklings that the Buddha had, that maybe, maybe there's something else, maybe I've got something wrong here. Because in Buddhist understanding, nobody or nothing can cause you psychological pain. It's all self-inflicted. Pain in the body is, is a given. You can't do much about that. The body has its own life form. But suffering is optional. And we, we've opted to suffer. Mainly because of delusion. So <clears throat> the process uh, of liberation is that process of detachment. Detachment. And that's what the meditation is about, the one I've just taught you. It's about beginning to realize that I'm not this, I don't own this, I, I'm not that, I don't own that. You see? Now, people think, therefore, if you continue this process, you just end up being nothing, just a blob. Yeah, because you're not this, not that. <laughs> you end up, what do you do? You just sit under a tree looking, looking enlightened. But what happens is, of course, is that in uh, undermining the wrong relationship to the world, we discover a proper relationship. And what we discover is that everything we thought we were letting go on is given back to us. So once the Buddha was enlightened, all the intellect that he had developed through his discussions and, and arguments with, uh, you know, at home and whatnot, came to the service of expressing the Dharma all the earlier attachments which he would have considered uh, as love, as compassion, was cleansed of that attachment. But there was immediately after his realizing what he'd understood, there was an immediate desire to express this for others out of compassion. Immediate connection with other beings to bring them out of suffering. And as soon as he did that, there was a bit of a shake because he didn't think anybody could understand it. Uh, and uh, the, the great god Sahampati came down and asked him to teach because some people had uh, only a little dust in their eyes. So then, having determined to teach, off he goes, he walks, he, and that's his action. See? So within that enlightenment, these three questions become answered. Right? What he is in terms of uh, his ultimate state, what his relationship is to the world and what he has to do. And uh, I started off by saying that his life was archetypal. So we also have to go through that process. Yeah? And I think you'll find it um, uh, right across the board of, of the spiritual life. 
you know, no matter what um, spiritual form it takes, Christianity, Islam and whatnot, if you look at the, the mystics, they're all doing the same thing, one way or the other. There has to be a leaving of the world to refine it. So don't look so glum. <laughs> yeah. In the end, in the end, you're happy. <laughs> he was happy, and he died very peacefully. Died on his side. He said, right before he died, he said, "Any more questions? Can you imagine? <laughs> Any more questions? What would be ours? You know, why me?" And then he was able, and then he gave his last, uh, his last piece of advice. All compounded things arise and pass away. Work diligently for your liberation. Just like that. So that's the end of my little homily.